welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. would like to take the opportunity to catch us up and get us on the same page of what's happening within this 16th chapter of the book of Exodus. But before I ever get there, there'll be some familiar themes lifted up, and we often will think, oh gosh, how could they have thought that? This text really is about dependency upon God. And I want to go into this text by starting in Genesis. You remember last week we talked about how in this series of thriving, what it means to thrive, we kind of went back into Genesis and realized that the first question in the Bible is from the devil. It is, did God really say that? Planning really a sense of wonder, not in a good way, but wonder as in speculation about the sovereignty and the goodness of God. I want to take us back there again in the garden before we get to Exodus and help us also to remember of the text words about what was the message of the devil. Now, as I mentioned last week, those of us who know Saturday Night Live skit have often found a lot of fun with Dana Carvey's Satan, right? Look, whatever your theology of evil called theodicy, right? Bad things happening, evil things happen. That's called theodicy. Just, just go with me on this. There's two teams to play for here. There's God's team and the other. Whether it's Lucifer, the absence of goodness, whether it's Satan, whether it's the devil, there's really God's will and desire and whatever else there is. So if we can just all kind of agree on that, then let's look at what was the message of the personification of evil in the devil. It wasn't follow me, Right? The devil didn't say, hey, I want you to follow me. Now, if you take the temptation of Jesus found in the Gospels, you'll find, hey, you know, bow down to me, worship me, I'll give you these things. But in Genesis, that's not the message of the devil. The message of the devil is first, planting doubt in the heart of God's creation and encouraging the creation to follow its own desires. You can go back and read the text today. Read Genesis 3. You'll see it for yourself. Oh, come on. Come on, God didn't really say that. He just doesn't want you to be like him. Follow the desires of your heart. And I would suggest to you that the greatest tension that exists for us in our culture today is that sense of autonomy that we have as citizens of the United States. And sometimes that bleeds so far over into us thinking about it's all about me and what I want. And we forget that the greatest lure is to follow our own desires that can be contrary to God's will and desire. Imagio Dei is in the Latin, it's the historic uh, affirmation of the church. We are all created in the image of God. We bear his likeness, but we have a tendency to want our own desires. I give you one simple illustration, a two-year-old. Do you have to teach the two-year-old to do right or to do wrong? What comes most naturally? Or is watching our grandson at 16 months, and I say, don't do that, he smiles and does it. He's just like his mother was. <laughs> All right, so there's this, there's this sort of natural kind of inclination. Look, we're not sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
We're sinners in the hands of a loving God. Right? We're people who tend to miss the mark. That's what sin means. It means to miss the mark. It's from archery. It's called harmatology. We miss the mark. We, we hear what God's teaching is, and either by our desires or our lack of attention, we just miss the mark. And sometimes we smile at God and we walk the other way and we do exactly what we know we shouldn't. We tend to follow the desires of our own hearts. And that is not always in agreement with what God's design and desire in the world is today. Now we fast forward and we get into Exodus. The people who have been delivered by God. Imagine you were part of that massive group of thousands of people. You've left Egypt. You've already seen the parting of the Red Sea. Holy cow, what an amazing thing. They get on the other side of the Red Sea. And in Exodus 14, there's no water to drink after three days. And they come across a place and it's bittered water. And God says, Moses, take this stick and place it in the water. It's a bit of a theophany, meaning that water was bitter until God gives a command and there's an interceding in what is happening and the water becomes sweet because God has intervened. God has changed the waters from being bitter and unable to consume to literally being what they can have and what they drink. They still are grumbling as they come out of... Um, in the 15th chapter, um, they're saying basically, Moses, gosh, you know, I mean, this has been cool stuff, but um, could you not have made sure that we had something to, to eat? And this is where we get into the 16th chapter. And this 16th chapter is you've got this sense of grumbling, a God who delivers, a God who supplies, a people who has a tendency to forget. You see, our dependency is something that is really what this is about. Do we want to be dependent upon God or ourselves? And the last thing I'll mention to you to sort of want you to frame your mind in a modern context as we move into this passage is I want you to imagine that you go home today and there is absolutely nothing in your pantry except enough for your meal for Mother's Day and that's it. Your pantry has nothing else in it. Oh, and you can't door drop. You can't curbside pickup. It's empty. There's nothing there. You see, friends, part of what we're about to read is we need to read our context into this text. And we need to let it speak to us. Because the biggest problem we have is that our garages, our pantries, and our closets are full and our hearts tend to be empty. And we think if we can just get the garage filled with the right things, or the pantry always overflowing, or the closets filled with things, then it'll fill the heart, but it doesn't work that way. So when we read about these people, the Hebrew people, and we hear their grumbling and their forgetfulness, their sort of spiritual amnesia at the least, this sort of blatant sense of uh, being functional atheists, thinking God doesn't even exist because it all depends upon them. Be careful how you hear this text, because I want you to imagine, what would it feel like if you had to depend upon God for everything tomorrow? Your pantry was empty completely empty. How would you sleep tonight? Trusting and hoping that God would provide. Think about that as you stand now in respect to God's word. I'll be reading from the NIV translation of the book of Exodus verses 1 through 8. 
And so the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated and let us pray together. May your spirit, O God, stand between me and your people so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together will be shaped, formed, and molded into the good news of the gospel of Christ, in whose name we have gathered, in whose name we pray, and in whose name we will depart and seek to serve you faithfully. And all of God's people did say. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. The world around us has a way of helping shape how we see everything, sets our values at times, influences what we see encourages us to either be people of hope and sometimes people of a sort of a callous skepticism. So when we think about what it means to thrive as people of faith, what we need to remember is that our thriving in the faith to live as if Jesus is alive is to have our faith in him and not in ourselves. Finish the old adage Man, that guy was self-made. He pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, right? This idea. Then, then, then there's tension. I'm a self-made man. I, I did this for myself, right? Think on the other side of the spectrum 
where people have been through so much, they'll say, I just can't take anymore. I just can't do it. When circumstances seem overwhelming, it's because we try to locate most of what we do just in our own abilities. When the gift that God gives us in faith is that we don't have to go it alone and we don't have to do it alone. And so the number one obstacle to thriving in life is realizing you are not alone and it doesn't all depend upon you. God is with you in times of difficulty to be strengthening you, in times of discouragement to bring you hope in Christ, in times of celebration there's someone to cheer with in the community of faith. And God is with you. Now, we all probably have heard the phrase Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And too often along with Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, I know the plans that I have for you. We, We tend to put these as sort of prosperity markers when the reality is both of those contexts. In Jeremiah chapter 29, the people are about to face exile and God is putting a heart, a planting a promise in their hearts before the exile that he will be with them. Paul's imprisoned when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not, I can get an A on my next math test. But he's in the midst of a deep struggle. And I once heard it said that when I can't do all things through Christ, can I let Christ do all things through me? And it changes the paradigm for us to remember that we can be a conduit of God's grace. In part of the paradoxical aspect of the faith is when you give yourself away in Christian love and the way of Christ, which often is the way of the cross, it's filled with suffering and self-denial, what you will discover is that God's love does not deplete from you, but is consistently renewed in you. You see, the Christian faith alone has this paradigm that when we give ourselves away, we actually find more of ourselves. And how does that work? It works when Moses and Aaron hear God's instructions. And oftentimes we say, oh gosh, how could God be so cruel as to test the people? Have you ever gone down to the DPS and said, how could you be so cruel as to test me for my eyesight or my driving capabilities? No. Have you ever walked into anything where there is a test? This is really clear. Now, the King James Version softens a little bit. It it has this sort of robust, more compassionate feel. Moses, I will do this that I might prove myself to the people. But when you really dig into the the Hebrew word, it it really means test. That, That God has laid out before the people that I am going to provide. And I want to see, are you going to listen? Are you going to listen? That's a great thing for us to hear today. Will we listen? And when we read through the text, we find not only is God going to provide this, he does exactly as he's promised. He has provided in verses 13 through 23, literally it says this, that evening quail came and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? Now, what's interesting is the word manna in the Hebrew, one of its meanings is, what is it? That's kind of a play in the literature aspect. But they'd say, what is it? Now, before we go any further, it's not like they didn't know God's promise that he was going to provide them meat and bread. But they see it and they go, well, what's this? 
for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. And the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until the morning. Can you guess where this is going? A command to follow, they don't. A command to follow, they don't. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came around and reported this to Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of Sabbath rest. The holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until the morning. God is faithful to his promises of providing for us and meeting us. In our journey, at the very least, we are at times spiritual agnostics when we forget God's faithfulness. And at the worst, we become functional atheists because we believe that everything depends upon us. As Elizabeth Barrett Browning expressed it this way, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. I have no idea what that last line means with Elizabeth Barrett Browning, <laughs> but I am reading it because I was struck by the analogy, only those who see, right? Only those who see take off their shoes. Moses is frustrated with the people, but listen to the text. You read that whole 16th chapter this afternoon after you celebrate moms and call your moms and call your grandmothers and aunts and uncles and daughters. Read that 16th chapter. God doesn't get angry. Moses gets frustrated and angry. God remains faithful. And you and I actually have another tendency that the Israelite people have. We have this tendency to forget the struggles and pain in the past events and focus more on the outcomes and the results. The best way I know to illustrate this is um, I'm a United Methodist pastor. You may not know this, but pastors, regardless of denomination, are at times given to a sense of, shall we say, embellishment, or we stretch things at times, Right? Two stories to illustrate this to you. First, a 19-inch snowfall came in a 28-hour period in Amarillo. Roads were impassable. Um, every church except First Baptist, which is live at 8.30 and had been for the past 60-some years, Howie Batson decided to have church. He had 13 people. He normally runs 2,100. 13 people. Okay, I watched it, right? I even told my wife, I've got a four-wheel drive truck. I want to put on my Polk Street United Methodist Church and go sing in Howie's choir at the Baptist Church. And she said, you can't do that. You canceled church. You can't go sing in the Baptist Church. Said, oh, that's right. So we're at coffee the following Thursday. 
And stories are being circulated. Well, Howie was the only one. Someone said, Howie, how many people did you have in church? He said, well, less than 500. (laughs) He's right, right? Last time I checked, the brother knows his math. 13 is less than 500, right? Uh, Forgot the story. He also, what he failed to mention was he got there late. And he actually made his associate preach because the associate could walk to church to open it up. We have a tendency to... To, to really forget the struggle and celebrate the outcome. The people of Israel did that. Literally. Moses, why did you bring us out here? Man, oh, if we could just be back in Egypt. Now, if you read the whole text, Egypt wasn't really friendly to the Jewish people. But in their minds, oh, oh, Moses, if we could just go back. Man, Egypt. Egypt was the place, wasn't it, Moses? Yeah. We sat around and ate all we wanted. Pots were full of meat and everything else. I want to go, uh, excuse me. Did you have to make any bricks? Uh, Were you slaves? We all have this tendency to forget the struggles. When we come up against the most recent challenge. And the people do this. Here's the great good news of the gospel. God is always faithful. Even when we forget his faithfulness in the midst of the struggles. I think the best way to think about this in the New Testament form is Paul's words in Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. So what I want to ask you today is a very pointed question. In your life, what kind of life do you want to build? And if your life were a home or a house, um, what would that house look like? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about this kind of imagery when we come to Christ and, and letting God move the things that aren't resembling his design and desire out of our lives, that there would be space for him to create what he wants to create, our availability to God. He says it this way, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. Well, we all know those places where God needs to tell us, hey, you know what? You need, to, you need to handle these things. But presently, says Lewis, God starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make much sense. Well, what on earth is God up to? The explanation is that God is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But God is building a palace. And he intends to come and to live in it himself. Don't you love that imagery? You see, here's our struggle to thriving. It all boils down to this. We have a tendency to live in the spirit of a book that was written years ago. What's the least I have to do to be a Christian? 
Because what happens is our comfort and our convenience become the most, uh, the most immediate thing we bump up against when we make ourselves available to God. So what kind of house do you want to build? You want to thrive in life? You want to move beyond just surviving? You want to thrive? Then you have to make room and space in your life available for God to move. And you have to recognize what is distinctively true about the Christian journey is that we are being shaped and molded into Christ-likeness. And that means there are things that we have become comfortable and convenient doing that have to change. I found this out in a really personal kind of way in my own health this past week. I had that dreaded thing that we all don't want to look forward to called the annual exam and blood draw. You know, that one where you're thinking things might not be so good in the blood panel, so when the doctor calls, you don't pick up. That's me. That's me. Made him call me twice. I'm going to get all my money's worth, right? Yeah, you know, I I just want to talk to you about a... I always love how the doctor starts out. I just want to talk to you about a couple of things in your test results. They don't call you to talk to you or return your call on your test results when everything looks good, right? And, and I'd seen the nurse practitioner. She said, well, how's it going and whatnot? And she said, have you been healthy? Have you been eating good? I said, I sure have for the last six days before I saw you. <laughs> well, she didn't hear that. And I went on to recount her saying, well, you see, I was in Israel and Jordan and ate just about all the sweets and uh, carbs I could put my hands on. They were fantastic. Oh, and by the way, about two weeks ago, I spent four days um, inside prison eating cookies till I couldn't eat anything else because that's what they provide on the table. So no, I've not been eating good at all. But when Dr. Gentry heard it, he said, well, Jessica said you thought you were really, doctor, I was eating good for six days before I saw you. He said, okay, well, that makes this a, not much, Bert, but it makes a little better what I'm about to tell you, Right. And basically, when you eat a lot of sugar, you know where this is going, right? I've already told Alice Pope that the Lord put on my heart that she needs to figure out how to make sugar-free banana pudding. That's what God was telling me in that visit with the doctor, right? (laughs) Look, real practical, real simple. My health, if I want my health and outcome to be different, I have to change what I put into my body, right? I have to realize that as I age... Well, that's another issue, right? You get older, that doesn't so great. But I have to change what I ingest. I have to change what I put. What about your life and your faith? You see, friends, if you just fill your life with social media tweets or the media you see and you expect the outcome of your life to be healthy, hopeful, and Christ-like, it's never going to happen. You've got to change your spiritual diet. This text... In Exodus 16, is about depending upon God to provide your needs, knowing that when you awake in the morning, God will provide. How's the old hymn go? Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Friends, you're going to trust somebody to provide for your life and faith. I encourage you, change your diet if you're finding that you're not in a good place. And if afterward there's anything you want to visit about, any of us as clergy would love to sit down and visit with you. 
Sometimes it's just to tell you, man, I haven't got that one figured out either. Sometimes it's to encourage you and tell you, well, here's a scripture that might be encouraging to you. But most of all, know this, wherever you are in that struggle, wherever you are on that journey, God will remain faithful. God will provide. And the love of Christ will always be there for you. Let's pray together. God, as we think about what it takes to move our lives from a place of struggling for temporary happiness because of what's in the world around us, would you remind us that in our faith, we can find full measure of joy, thriving, contentment, and peace in you. God, help us to know that that doesn't mean that magically the struggles are over, but it means that we avail ourselves to your grace, your love, and your presence. And that reminds us that we are never alone. For this we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people did say, Amen.